You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Toonstar, an animation tech startup that produces snackable, interactive content for mobile audiences. To learn more, visit Toonstar.com or download the Toonstar app. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Jeff Ponchik, co-founder and CEO of Repost Network. Jeff, welcome to the show. How's it going? Good. Happy to be here. I was going to say, you know, we're mostly a music company, so I don't don't know what we're doing on the All Things Video podcast. That's right, but it's it's an audio (laughs) broadcast, so here we are in your uh, beautiful offices down here in, what is this, West LA? Yes, we're like right on the border of Santa Monica. Very good. It's nice, because it's like, we can kind of say we're Santa Monica, but we're not quite paying the price per square foot of Santa Monica. It works out for us. Got a good deal. Yeah. Very nice. (laughs) So, Jeff, I want to start things off and find out how you found your way into the media space. Yeah, sure. So going back, I actually started out as a video editor. I don't know if you knew this or not, but was essentially working over at Disney uh, as an assistant editor and kind of ended up being fortunate getting started at two companies that went on to do pretty well. I ended up very early at a company called Jukin Media, which is, I believe, if not the largest, one of the largest viral video licensors in the world. So I was maybe employee three or four there. And that business was essentially reaching out to channels on YouTube who had fail videos. So someone getting kicked in the nuts or, you know, falling off of something and it had accrued, it had gone viral. And we would go out to them, enter into a licensing agreement with them, and then bridge it to television, right? So getting out of Tosh.0 or ridiculousness and make those content creators more money, which was exciting. And now I believe they're like four or 500 people, offices in London, they're doing incredibly well. And then after that, I started my first company, which failed, left Jukin to create a video processor for when people were at concerts filming with their cell phone cameras, it would crowdsource the angles, synchronize all the angles, and auto-edit them into a new video that turns the audience into the cameraman for the artist. Wow, very cool. Yeah, what was so that company called? It was called OutListen, and that was kind of when I first got the kind of entrepreneurial bug, right? I was starting my own thing, was able to raise some capital. The big le- lesson there was... You know, it was really cool tech. Like what I just said, we built, it worked, but it wasn't a great business, right? It was essentially like a marketing kind of a niche product. And, but I learned a lot through that. And then kind of after that, ended up at a company that, you know, was probably a year in called Fullscreen, which is one of the largest, now one of the largest, uh, what was multi-channel YouTube networks. I don't, I don't think anyone uses the term MCN really anymore, but that, that's what it was. And actually came, started at full screen in a video capacity. So I was actually originally on their production team, essentially helping their content creators or YouTubers that they worked with, you know, produce higher quality content. And then, you know, it kind of still being, you know, I would say somewhat of a startup at the time, you know, I got moved over to kind of help oversee the music initiative there. So yeah, for me, Repost, and I'm sure we'll get into what it is in a second, but you know, we're essentially a distributor in the music space, don't have a music industry background, actually come from more of a digital video background and kind of just fell into it by chance. So I'm curious, Um, why the music industry? Are you a musician yourself? Have you always just had a passion for music? Yeah, so I was definitely in my fair share of failed bands (laughs) back in the day in high school and college and a little bit after. Um, Yeah, played bass and drums and produced a bit on the side. But yeah, I mean, you know, I have always loved music. You know, in college, I worked at the radio station. I was the world music director. KCSC Santa Cruz, which was a really positive experience. And 
yeah, I like. I, I feel like I kind of felt that musicians are kind of music is one of those things that's so I know it, it hits everyone. You can't help but feel it in certain instances. And you know, while that's a beautiful thing, so many content creators in that space are underserved and not you know getting the money that they deserve. And there was just so many holes out there and things that could be fixed so that artists could you know make a living doing what they love. And you know, once I kind of unearthed that aspect of it while I pursued music personally, and that really called out to me, which is kind of why I am here today. Cool. So, I, yeah. I absolutely want to talk about that, but before we yeah, get off it, sure. I'd love to learn a little bit more about the early days of Jukin. Mm-hmm. I've had John Scoglow, and Lee Esner's also been on the show, and sure. I've heard the stories from John about running the business out of his apartment yeah. and all the <laughs> things when you guys were just starting off and hustling in the early days. So what was that experience like for you? Yeah, I mean, it started out as an internship, believe it or not. So, I mean, like, if you really want to drill into it, like, I... Got out of college, did you know? Worked on some film sets, things like that. Ended up at this post production company that you know was essentially Disney for a year. And then once that ended, I you know needed needed to. I wanted to stay working, and you know John initially gave me an internship. And yeah, it was uh, it was it was great. You know, it was. I think there's something beautiful to a company when it's just a few people and an idea, and it isn't fully like you know fully fleshed out, right? And you're really defining what the culture is of the company and you can play a really big part in that it's incredibly exciting so i mean the beginning of it i was just like editing videos on a cardboard box practically on like a like i think it was like a foldable one of those gray like picnic table things um (laughs) and yeah we were in this spot called the hollywood production center hpc out in hollywood and yeah, it was just a few of us, and i remember I, i look back on that experience quite fondly like the the first six six 12 months of that was, you know, it grew quickly and it changed a lot. And that was a fun thing to be a part of. And so were there, were those memories, things that you carried with you when you started your business? Tell me a little bit about the music startup when you were trying to stitch together multiple pieces of concert footage. What were the things that you learned or took away from that experience? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think John, who, you know, is the CEO, the the founder of Jukin, you know, he's a incredible leader. So definitely learned, you know, a lot. And also I got to, to know him very closely and personally just because of, you know, the size of the company when I started. So, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think, like, lessons learned. Um, yeah, you know, you, you, you see what works, you see what doesn't work. And I would say definitely management style. I mean, John was kind enough to, you know, as I went through that process, you know, meet with me a couple times and advise me on, you know, like, oh, you should really be thinking about the rights, less about the tech and more about the rights that you're acquiring and that, you know, are you actually solving a need in acquiring the rights that like you need to get to, you know, build this into a bigger business, which I didn't listen to and I probably should have. You know, he was he was kind of along and helped me out, you know, a bit along the way there, which which was helpful. Um but what inspired you to start your own business? Have you always had the entrepreneurial bug? I don't know. I mean that that was kind of the first one. I mean I think I've always been kind of, you know, probably hard to manage as an individual person. I tend to always, you know, think I know the answer to things when, you know, maybe I do, maybe I, I don't, <laughs> if it's the right answer. Um, but yeah, I think it was a, I had like a light bulb moment with that company where, you know, I would essentially, I would have to do multi-camera edits, right, for John at Jukin. You know, if we were doing a, a live video of something, you know, there'd be three or four angles. And there was a software called Pluralize, which would actually look at the audio waveform of, you know, so if you have multiple videos, 
they're technically all recording the same audio and it would basically like deduce the audio waveform from all say all three angles into like mathematical endpoints and then like synchronize multiple video sources via the audio and this was i think at the time in which people were like you know really filming concerts quite a bit <laughs> i think it's probably died down a bit but it was like you'd go to a show and all you would see would be camera phones and yeah i just had a life bull moment i just said wouldn't it be cool if you know you could take all this like you know, ancillary, like, like shitty content, right? Like that's trapped on someone's phone and actually like connect it with other people's content and make it more valuable. And I think also just having, you know, the, the being in the fail space with, you know, what we did with Jukin, I mean, I kind of got to understand that space as well. Right. And I mean, if you look at Jukin's model, it's like taking content on YouTube, that's like a fail video that, you know, maybe could use some more exposure or more value could be kind of gleaned out of it, right? And that's what Jukin does so well. And I kind of thought maybe I can do the same thing in music in, and in the concert space, right? So yeah, I mean, I think 100%, I took a lot of the like business learnings and just kind of ideas and thoughts that John had about what was going on with UGC content at the time. And I just tried to take my, create my own sort of like tech, put a, put a tech product around that, right? What was the hardest part about being a first-time founder? Hard. I mean, you learn so much. It's it's hard to say. I mean, I think for us, because that was a business that didn't quite have a business model to start, it was, you know, learnings around fundraising, for sure, right? So, you know, if you're not a business that makes money, like Jukin is a business that makes money, right? Like if they get, they license a video, a failed video on YouTube and get it on Ridiculousness, they're paying a fee for that, right? And that's getting split between Jukin and the uh, person who filmed it, right? With what we were doing, we were focused on just building the tech and proving out the model. So there was no route to revenue anytime soon. So, um, you know, just learning how to handle yourself with investors, how to sell yourself, really showing where the opportunity is. I think there was a lot of learnings around that. Um, one of our investors was someone by the name of Howard Marks, um, who started a platform called Start Engine. And, you know, he was pretty instrumental in teaching us how to, how to sell myself a little bit better. But yeah, I think that would definitely be it. Because I think if I had been better at fundraising, maybe we could have lasted a little bit longer, yeah. to be completely honest. I've actually met Howard. I think, wasn't he one of the original co-founders of Activision as well? Yeah, he was there very, very early very on. Very impressive yep. guy. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So fast forward so, to your time at Fullscreen. Yep. You had a similar aha moment, which gave you the inspiration for Repost Network? Yes, somewhat. So I think, I mean, getting into Fullscreen, you know, I... I didn't really even know too much about what full screen was, like what a YouTube MCN even was. And I remember I came in in a, in a content, like I came in the door because I was a good editor, right? I think I was a decent editor at least, you know? And when I just remember getting in the door and it, like my mind being like absolutely blown, like that you can aggregate multiple YouTube channels, you know, take over their AdSense, get in front of the dollars that are being generated and how to provide ancillary revenue and, you know, services. It was just like, my mind was blown. And I was like, oh my God, I need to learn like everything about this business. And yeah, it was like three years. It was like an MBA for me. It was, it was honestly like going to business school. It was, you know, I tried to get to know everyone on the product teams, try and get everyone to know on the business development teams, you know, on the, the right side of things, you know, and I think your question was like around the light bulb moment. You know, I think it wasn't necessarily like light bulb moment for me. I think it was, you know, as I kind of transitioned into the music department, I really got into the weeds with regards to how money gets made in music. And the thing that was like so interesting about full screen, and I would say this is similar, you know, having talked to my friends at other larger MCNs, like Maker when it was still around, Studio 71, is that there's a ton of music creators on YouTube, right? Like cover musicians, people making music, 
YouTube promo channels like Majestic Casual, The Sound You Need. But it was a scenario where at full screen, it was like, if you looked at the number of creators in our network, the number one was gaming, like with regards to the number of creators in that vertical. Number two was music, right? So we were the second largest kind of vertical within full screen with regards to number of creators, but we were like the lowest from a revenue standpoint. And I was like, well, why is that? What's going on? And it was this, you know, claims are insane. You know, there were just all these barriers for musicians in front of like actually effectively monetizing their audiences and their content. And when I got into the weeds on that, you know, I was sort of able to piece together, you know, my idea of, you know, if I were to go out and do this myself, how I would personally go about empowering artists to make more money through their audiences online. And um, so, yeah, it wasn't quite like a light bulb moment. Definitely our largest platform is SoundCloud. And we definitely saw like a hole or an opportunity to go after there. But it wasn't like the aha moment I had, I think, with my first company where it was like, oh, what if you could like apply this to to concert footage, it was just like, I know I want to do this. I feel the calling. I want to help artists make more money. Let's figure out how to do that by by any means possible, right? Yeah. So, so how did the SoundCloud partnership come about? Because that's been a big part of the repo story, mm-hmm. right? That you've helped artists kind of grow their SoundCloud following and increase monetization. Yeah, totally. So with regards to SoundCloud, you know, they rolled out monetization for the first time ever, maybe, I think it was like three years ago-ish, uh, maybe more. And in like the very, very beginning stages of that, you could only monetize on plays, on ad-based plays in the US only, right? So it's like very, very niche and specific, right? But the in order to like get an ad to be placed in front of a song on SoundCloud, it required, you know, essentially a ton of clearance, right? So you had to register all the songwriters with a third-party company. Essentially, it was a process that involved tons of spreadsheets, communication between SoundCloud and the artists and all the rights holders. I think at one point it even involved physical mail. So like, you know, if James, if like you and I wrote a song with someone in Russia, we would have to wait for a letter to get to Russia and have that verified before the song could get monetized on SoundCloud, which is like nuts if you think about it. So it was a scenario in which like if you're a major label or you're a major independent label, like you have the workforce to get through all the spreadsheets and do all the clearances and get it done. But if you're independent and so much of SoundCloud's, you know, platform is independent artists, you know, it's like good luck, right? It felt like it was slipping through the cracks. Not not that SoundCloud was doing a bad job. It was just the process that, you know, they had to go through legally to have that happen. And so, yeah, I mean, the first problem we tackled was like, okay, let's empower more independent artists on SoundCloud. Let's build an application where you're working with us. You know, we you can log in. We have a, a dashboard product. It pulls in all your music via SoundCloud's API, and we just collect all the information we need to via a nice, easy-to-access interface and then automate the clearance on the back end. And when we did that, it just kind of exploded. Yeah. And But did I answer your question, though? Your question was, like, how did we, how how did we, did go, you, how did we approach SoundCloud exactly, or how do we get the deal? How did you deal? start the partnership? Oh, how do we start the partnership? So, yeah, I mean, what was fortunate about full screen was, you know, when I chose to leave, you know, it was a scenario where I had you know, built a lot of relationships with, you know, some of the larger influencers on YouTube whose audiences did translate into SoundCloud. So I was able to basically go to SoundCloud with like a roster of people and say like, hey, you know, like I think, actually, no, that's not what happened. I actually found another MCN in Canada that was focused around electronic dance music and I did a partnership with them. Which MCN? It's called Dream Crusher. Yeah. And I basically said, like, hey, look, you've got a couple hundred content creators on YouTube who are like artists, right? Let me try and get a deal with SoundCloud. If I can get a deal with SoundCloud, we can like, you know, share in the net revenues generated. So that allowed me to go to SoundCloud with like a body of 
clients essentially ready to go. So yeah, and so we were able to, that made it so at least I wasn't just some guy, you know, <laughs> coming in trying to get a deal with SoundCloud super early. I actually had like a, a creator base ready to go. And so I was able to kind of like, you know, I think use that to kind of whet SoundCloud's appetite and convince them to, to do a deal with us. Yeah. yeah. And of so. course, since then, you've gone on to work with YouTube Music, Apple Music, Spotify, and a number of other distribution outlets all totally. over the world. Yeah, we're in a, yeah, we just launched in China, so we can get artist music into Tencent, Alibaba, NetEase. We just partnered with Sovin in India, just one of the largest streaming sites there. What's also exciting is we launched Facebook and Instagram, so we can get your music into Instagram stories, which is awesome way to get your music out there and, and be heard. Yeah, we're always looking to, yeah, I would say right now, like new streaming services that are like niche to large territories and services that can help like expand our artists reach an audience is like very top of mind for us right now. Since, the, since we've gotten like all the majors, Spotify, Amazon, like, you know, once you've done all the deals with the main ones, then you need to figure out what's the strategy beyond that, right? So. And are those outlets prim primarily promotional or are they also offering monetization opportunities for artists? Uh, yeah, I mean, you always want to bring in, like the mission of the company is to help musicians make a living through their audiences online, right? Musicians and or label owners, right? And so, yeah, you always want to, you know, generate revenue for the client. You know, the question always is like, you know, certain platforms pay out better than others do, <laughs> YouTube being one of the worst, but, but YouTube has the scale, right? So it starts, so it, it does sort of become valuable, but on a kind of value for per play standpoint. But yeah, and I mean, definitely the name of the game in music is like the larger network you can build or the catalog, we call it, you know, a catalog you can build. It allows you, to, when you go to the next platform, you essentially have a little bit more weight, right? So you can negotiate for, you know, in your deal, okay, we want a, a marketing commitment, right? We want, you know, sometimes you can, sometimes even negotiate a better rate if it's a newer platform, uh, you know, things like that. So as you've kind of alluded to, the rights landscape of music is incredibly complex. Yeah. Right. There are labels, publishers, the sound recording assets and the original composition has a, a right attached to it as well. Yep. How do you keep track of that and make sure that all parties get paid appropriately? Sure. So repost, we are ninety nine point nine percent a like master sound recording based business. That's the main right that we are collecting on. We have launched a publishing administration offering as well. So Essentially, the difference between master rights and publishing rights are the master is the actual recording itself. So it's like the drums, the guitar, the vocals. And then the publishing is sort of the like IP aspect of it, right? That's the melody. That's the lyrics, things like that, right? And the example I like to give is an instance of a cover, right? So let's say, you know, we bust out our guitars on this podcast and cover a Taylor Swift song, we would own that recording because James and I, we were, you know, it's our voices, we're singing, we're, you know, James, he's drumming on the table, I'm playing guitar. We own that recording, but we don't own the lyrics or the melody, right? So technically, and then in the instance of a remix, you don't own anything usually because, you know, you're taking someone's recording and you're taking, and that includes their melody or lyrics or like the, their publishing, right? So for us, we specifically focus on the sound recording side. We have launched a publishing admin entity, but that's very case-by-case -case basis. When it comes to the music streaming landscape, like if you were to, if you, let's say a dollar is generated on Spotify, right? Usually about... And I'm going to trim some cents here, right, to make it whole numbers. Let's say 30 cents on the dollar goes to Spotify, right? About 60, 58 to 60 cents 
goes to the sound recording rights. So that's like the bulk. And then the publishing is like usually like 10 or 12 cents. So of that dollar, at least in the streaming music ecosystem, the publishing opportunity is much lower than the sound recording opportunity from a revenue standpoint. So we've obviously focused on the larger moneymaker, but where it makes sense, like if we have a client who's doing, you know, millions and millions of plays a month, that like, you know, what, 9 to 12% could be meaningful. And then that, that's sort of a value add that we'll kind of come back and say like, hey, we can also do this for you. The plan 100% is to build a platform in which if you're an artist or label who's working with us, you know, we can service both sides and you'll get every penny you're entitled to. And shockingly, that doesn't exist in music. There's no one platform you can go to and register everything easily and, you know, monetize both sides and, you know, yeah, like I said, get every cent you're entitled to. So that that's definitely what we're aiming to build. Um, Do you think that will change over time as either new technologies are introduced, like blockchain, or there's yeah. more uh, you know companies working to increase transparency and help artists make money? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting, right? Like if you look at the recorded music market, it's like you have the era of CDs, vinyl, you know, stuff like that, like pre Napster. It's like great, like everyone's stoked, right? Then Napster comes along. And like just tanks all the revenue, right? Like the revenue just went to a free fall. And then in 2015, it kind of recorrect. You kind of have this uptick in revenue, right? So it's kind of starting to move to trend back. I think they say by like 2020, it might be 2020 or 2021. We might be back to the like revenue size it was sort of during the CD era. And so as a result of that, you're getting a lot of, and then that along with like the Spotify IPO, you're starting to see a lot of investor and tech related interest in the music space, which I think didn't exist in the CD era. So it's, to answer your question, yes, 100%. Like you're starting to see new funded blockchain startups who are trying to solve, you know, rights and registration based issues in music. You're starting to see more well-capitalized music startups actually try and solve these problems which is good. I mean, it's maybe bad for us because it means more competition. But if we're all working together, though, towards a better ecosystem in which artists are being compensated appropriately, then great. There's a stat. Sorry, you totally have me on a music industry rant right now. I love it. There's a stat right now that of the $38 billion per year in the music industry that's you know available in that market, only 12% of that is paid back to the artists, right? Wow. And what that means is it's because it's because of inefficiencies. It's because of hundreds of millions of dollars are sitting in you know, sound exchanges bank account meant to be paid out, but it's just not because people don't have the education and wherewithal or or aren't working with the right people to get that money. And so, which is great for certain entities because they're making probably a ton off the interest, right? <laughs> but, you know, it's just, it's, it's a highly inefficient space. There's a lot of money out there and technology is 100% something that that can solve. So, yeah, I mean, that's, we're 100% in that race for sure. Awesome. Yep. I've had Jason Peterson from Go Digital on the podcast in the past, and we talked a lot about the yep. value gap between monetization through ad-supported platforms like YouTube, which you've mm -hmm. said monetizes uh, you know, among the poorest of these sure. distribution platforms. And then you have something like Spotify, where a subscription-based platform monetizes much higher for an individual user and on a per-stream basis. So how do we solve that, especially in developing countries, emerging economies that you know, a consumer maybe doesn't have as much disposable income and spending power yeah. uh, to spend on a subscription. A reliable Wi-Fi connection is as vital as your wallet. With Skyrim, you won't be trapped in a cafe or wander for Wi-Fi again. 
for work or fun. The Solus 4G LTE Wi-Fi hotspot has you covered with fast Wi-Fi across the U.S. and in 130 countries. And with its built-in power bank, devices stay charged on the go. Get data by the day, month, or gig. No contracts. Go to skyroam.com slash techpod to save 20% off a of Solus with code techpod20. Business Insider calls it a must-have travel gadget. Visit skyroam.com slash techpod. Offer code techpod20. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's hard, right? It's like, I think it depends on the nuances of each platform, right? And even the like political and policy-based <laughs> aspects of each country, right? It gets like really complex when you get into that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you have like Tidal, right? Which is a great example who said, you know, there's going to be no ad tier, right? It's only going to be subscription and their, you know, value, their price for play is like, it's incredible. It's like a, what, I think a, a $10 CPM, something like that. It's, it's one of the best, but the problem is they don't have the critical mass of people using the platform for that to actually be like valuable. So like what we've seen is you almost want to find like a happy middle ground. It's like YouTube is one of our biggest platforms for revenue, even though the value per play is so low, but YouTube has what, how many, a billion? 1.4. 1.4 billion people using it. Like, great. And so you end up having to find like this weird, it's like a weird balancing act, which is like, okay, maybe the value per play is really low on YouTube, but there's like a larger critical mass of people using it because it's free. Then like, that's great. Like we're empowering artists, you know, to pay their rent or reinvest in, you know, themselves off of like, you know, by coming up with a content ID strategy that, you know, they never once had before. And that's like incredibly powerful for them. And it's great that you can, YouTube can do that. Yeah, for sure. Spotify, I think as of like today, like this moment in time has like probably the best, at least, you know, China aside has probably the best kind of like, you know, critical mass of like paying subscribers to like active users um, in which you tend to see like the most revenue. I think most people would say that they're seeing the majority of their revenue coming from Spotify at this time. But um, to answer your question, I don't really know, man. It's, um, I, you know, each platform's different. And, you know, I think the more people, the more things that they can do to get people to pay for these types of services, you know, from a subscription standpoint is wildly valuable. I think it's something like 30 or 40, if you look at like, almost any platform ad versus subscription. It's like, I think a subscription-based user or yeah, consumer is worth like 30x more than an ad-based. So, I mean, almost in every scenario you want more subscription-based listeners. I think Spotify, for example, has done a great job with the notion of breakage. So that's partnering with like Vodafone or like essentially like a wireless carrier, right? To give away, you know, Spotify for free for a year if you sign up with... T-Mobile or like whatever it is, right? And then you essentially get that carrier to like foot the bill, right? And it goes into kind of a different revenue bucket. But, you know, there are ways that, you know, the telecom world also can, I think, be valuable. And some platforms are doing a better job at that than than others. I know some of those deals are kind of gnarly, though, because you can only work with one. I, I don't know. I don't know this for sure, but this is just what I've heard. Really, like a platform can only do a deal with one carrier per country. It has to be sort of exclusive. So I don't know if changes can be made around that um, to drive more more subscriber-based listens. But, but yeah, I mean, more paying subscribers, the better, right? Because people sure as hell aren't going to be paying for music individually. What does the future hold for the music industry? Any predictions to offer? Yeah, for sure. So I'm really bullish, obviously, on the independent sector. So if you go back to kind of what I said earlier, where like you had like the CD era, right? Napster comes along, revenue drops, significantly and then you know in 2015 
due to music streaming revenues start to increase again in, in the music space. The key difference between like then and now, like we're talking like the 90s versus like today, you know, when revenues were at an all time high, you know, 90, 95% of those revenues were in the major label system, right? Because the major labels had to, you know, you if you had, they had the distribution into Tower Records, right? It would cost a lot of money to get you in the studio, right? All that's gone, right? And now that streaming is starting to really drive all the revenue growth in the space, you have more artists than ever before for consumers to listen to, right? And so I think now today, whereas it was like major labels had like 90% of the market, now it's like 43% of the market is independent. And the opportunity I think there is you're going to start to see a lot more like white picket fence type musicians, right? And that's artists who, you know, maybe they're not going to make as much money as Taylor Swift, although there will always be a Drake or a Taylor Swift. But you'll start to see more artists who will be able to make, you know, livable incomes or at least like ancillary revenue to whatever their day job is than you know, has been available any other time in the history of music. And I think that a major label isn't the type of entity that can, like, take advantage of sort of that middle market opportunity or mid-tail opportunity, if if that makes sense. It's going to be someone like us or a technology company who can scale a platform out to service 100,000 artists who make between whatever, $500 and $100,000 a month in revenue, you know, and if you can do that, I think you have, like, a really big business, right? Like, so yeah, I'm very bullish on the sort of the independent, like mid tail of music, right? Yeah. Like who, who are the, like, yeah, I think that's, that's the key difference between then and now. And that's the, that's the big gap or opportunity. Well, and the scarcity problem is gone, right? Before right. there was a limited amount of radio playtime. There's a limited mm-hmm. amount of promotional space for physical distribution. And now those barriers have been eliminated, right? Through online streaming services, anyone can create, release, monetize their own content, reach an audience, and... They can uh, prove it out. Yeah, yeah and activate totally. that audience in more ways than ever before. And we've seen this resurgence in touring, right, which, which leads to offline monetization opportunities yep. through merch and, and you know, maybe a bit of revival in physical sales. So all of that nets out to more opportunity for artists, it seems. A hundred percent, yeah. I think, I think now, even though you have a lot of people like, you know... Like, even I kind of did it already earlier on, like throwing YouTube under the bus or, you know, saying like, oh, Spotify doesn't pay out enough or something like the reverse side is for every like big old school artist or songwriter who's saying that there's a thousand artists who are making money for the first time ever off their music and having that light bulb moment and going, holy shit, I can I can do this. Like, I can make a living doing this. And that's that's powerful. Right. And so, yeah, I, I think we see it all the time. We have we have an artist who is now making so much money through us. His, uh, the, he was raised by his grandparents and uh, his, the bank was going to foreclose on their home, right? Because they were like in debt. And he's paying back the bank and getting their, their home back that they, like with his like ro- royalty earning. Like, wow, you know, that, that, that could have never happened for this kid, you know, before the CDRS. So, I mean, it's incredibly powerful. It's like, yeah, that's what I get really jazzed about. That's like, I, I don't care about working with big artists. I care about helping independent people, you know, create those types of stories. What a great yeah. mission. I yeah, love totally. And what does the future hold for Repost Network? Yeah, so I mean, for us, it's it's to continue to focus on tech. We're a t- more of a tech company in music than a music company in music. So, you know, we're not really like a and hard and, you know, trying to like, you know, be backstage at every show and, you know, have like a really aggressive like sales strategy. Our process has always been trying to really drill down into what artists who make money need from a product standpoint 
be it around you know marketing, content protection, and monetization, and just build those products. And for us, we've seen an incredible word of mouth, and that's always worked for us. Like we don't have really much of a sales team. We don't do a lot of paid marketing. It's all just usually word of mouth inbound applications. And um, you know we want to continue just doing that, right? It's not if it's not broke, don't fix it. <laughs> yeah. So I think I think there's that. I think also for us. If you look at sort of music distribution from an industry standpoint, the people we're competing with, in a lot of cases, come from the era of digital download or that CD era. So their product offerings are really bad. And so, yeah, by us focusing on product and continuing to be laser focused on that helps us differentiate ourselves from these other sort of like larger whales, if that makes sense. So obviously you're in the thick of it with Repost, but uh, if you were to start a business in the media space today, completely starting from scratch, leveraging everything you've learned, what would you do? Honestly, I'm having such a good time running Repost. It's the happiest I've ever been. It's hard for me to imagine doing anything else. That's a good question. That's the right answer, by the way. I just ask people because there's so many other entrepreneurs that listen to the podcast that the, the idea is, what is the white space that you see out there? What are the other things that haven't been touched yet? opportunities for disruption that need to be introduced in the music space or, or beyond? Yeah, I mean, we're, I'll be honest, like, you know, let's see where we're at in six months, right? I, I'm just very grateful for where we are. Like, we're, you know, we're 17 people, cash flow positive business. And I was talking with my co-founder about this the other day, and it was just like, it was just like, yeah, like, we feel like there's so much more to do and so much more to build. And it's growing and we're bringing new people into the company and we're learning tons about you know, management and how to scale a business. And it's it's just, yeah, I mean, I I feel like it's like perfect place, perfect time right now. And I'm trying to be very like grateful for that, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's yeah. incredible. Well, but, we're excited and uh, look yeah. forward to see what the future holds for Repost as well. Totally, yeah. I mean, the future will be split pay. So that's that's the um, the next big rollout for us, which I think will be exciting. So that's uh, essentially like, let's say you and I write a song and I distributed it into Spotify and it's collecting royalties to the repost, I can basically input you as owning like, or having being entitled to 50% of the royalties or whatever split we state. And once the revenue comes in from Spotify and YouTube and Apple Music, it'll automatically split out to you and do the accounting for you. So that's like the next big thing that's coming out with us, which we're really excited for. Yeah. It'll be great. I'm sure artists have been clamoring for a feature like that so that it makes it easier to split yeah. things up the, the band. The accounting is never fun. I like to say that we're like the least sexy company in the music space, which is like a sexy space. Like we're, it's like, oh, we'll build accounting infrastructure and like a <laughs> delivery, content delivery pipeline. Somebody's got to do XML, it. XML, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we know that world all too well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. Very what, good. What, what about you? Like if you weren't, if you weren't doing Paladin, what, what would you want to do? Wow. It's a phenomenal question. I I'm almost don't want to give it away, but uh, <laughs> there's a couple things I've been toying around with. They're really just theoretical and, and would love to find the time for a practical application. But one idea is uh, really around LinkedIn management. Huh. So yeah. I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, love the platform, and uh, find a lot of challenges with the messaging infrastructure, right? Mm. I love meeting people through it and finding ways to get coffee just to learn about their fields. And we also use it as a sales tactic in our business. And it's very difficult to get a sense of, you know, when did people respond to you? When did you last send a message, right? So better tools to stay on top of your network and your messaging structure through LinkedIn. Yeah. Would that be tools like mostly for recruiters? I know recruiters are like the most hardcore users. For recruiters, yeah. salespeople. And, yeah. and I found that I use LinkedIn in some ways as a bit of a personal, not, not in a CRM per se, but a personal network. So if I travel, right, I'm looking for, hey, I'm going to Paris in a few weeks. 
not only do I want to have business meetings and catch up with customers and potential prospects out there, but which of my friends live in Paris now and I can right. catch up with and have a coffee on there. So that's one idea. The other is kind of in the travel space and been thinking about, you know, a way to make travel uh, and sharing those experiences more interactive. Mm. So if you and I have both been to, I don't know, Brazil and we want to share recommendations or I've we've been to Brazil and now I'm planning a trip to Argentina. I've never been, but you have. Mm. You can share some recommendations with me and I can see, you know, what's overlap in our interests. So that's that's an idea. Travel's kind of a bit of a crowded space, but um, something that I'm passionate about and would love to explore if I get the time at some point. Yeah, if you're listening, you should find a way to get back in touch with us and tell us which idea, which one of those two ideas you like best. Hey, right? you can A/B test a little here, right? <laughs> get some get some feedback. Get some real time feedback. Yeah. There we go. No, I feel like everyone like the it'd be the most romantic thing ever to like, it's like the most romanticized thing ever, like to have a successful travel company. Cause I feel like the perks are probably incredible. You probably oh, just get to travel around. Yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. But thanks for turning the question back on me. Yeah. Cause I feel like, you know, I, we don't really get the chance to do that. And, uh, I find that as an entrepreneur, you can't shut off that part of your brain. Like it always keeps you yeah. hundred miles yeah. an hour and you think, Oh, well this could be better. Or this, uh, business or industry could be changed somehow to make people's lives easier. So mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. really fun to just kind of kick those ideas. Yeah. Around. Yeah, of course. Jeff, where can people find out more about you and more about repost? Sure. So the repost website is repostnetwork.com. Welcome to check it out. We have live chat support. So if you want to go on the website and ask for me, you'll probably get me. My email is jeff at repostnetwork.com. If you want to get in touch and yeah, Twitter handle is just at Jeff Ponchik. Ponchik is spelled P-O-N-C-H-I-C-K. It's chick like a chicken. Yeah. Cool. Any old school uh, bass recordings up on SoundCloud? Or uh, drum th- solos? There might be out? one or two. Yeah, my SoundCloud <laughs> channel is at Jeff. So I was able to pull some strings and get wow, the, get the backslash Jeff. Yeah, okay. pretty pretty nice. So pretty easy to remember. Uh, you can see what I repost and what I like. If you're looking for some some music. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Deep House. So if you like that kind of music, you'll... You might like my SoundCloud page. Yeah. Right on. Well, this has been so much fun, <laughs> Jeff. Thanks for taking the time to share your experience in the media space, how that touched on video, and then kind of your love for music that inspired you to, to come and start Repost. It's yeah. been an awesome experience. So thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. <laughs>